Good morning. It is good to be back with you guys this week. As some of you know, uh, we were not here last week. We were in the hospital. For probably, I can think of only the only good reason uh, to be in the hospital, which is having a baby. Uh, and so I am uh, just really grateful. We answered our prayers. I know many of you were praying for us, and I just want to say thank you for that. Um, my wife, last Saturday, gave birth to Charlotte Rose, uh, a healthy delivery, and um, we have them here today with us. So grateful for that. I have a bit of a confession to make. Um, I like to play chess. Not the coolest thing. Um, but I was, uh, I was playing online, and when you're playing online, you have different screen names. And the screen name of the guy that I got paired up against was uh, the Satan Socialist Party. I don't think much more needs to be said about him. Uh, But yesterday I made a pretty good move and I took his queen from him. And this morning when I woke up, I had a notification on my phone that he had forfeited the game. And I thought, wow, that is a great way to start off the Lord's Day, with the resignation of the Satan Socialist Party. Um, So yeah, uh, we're very grateful to be here on the Lord's Day, worshiping with you guys, and uh, a good way to continue it by coming here and worshiping together as a family. So we are going to be in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. If you do not have a Bible with you, there's the Black Pew Bibles on the ends of the pew. Those are for you if you don't have a Bible. You can use them here, or you can take them home if you don't have one at home. That is on page 1021, 1021 on those Black Pew Bibles. As we look around us today, uh, I think it's easy to get confused by what we're seeing in the world. We see people making professions of followers of Christ, and yet living lives that are very different than that, maybe lives of uh, drunkenness or sexual immorality. Maybe we see them aligning themselves with groups that take completely anti-biblical stances on things like uh, gender or sexuality or even the sanctity of life. Uh, this was not just an issue in current-day America, but this was even something that was going on in the early church, a profession that did not match one's actions. So as we look at this, John is going to show us some clear indicators that were applicable back then but are also applicable today. Uh, First John was written by John the Apostle, the same one that wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote this probably later on in his life. We don't know exactly when, and we don't know exactly where he was or even exactly who he was writing to. But when we look at this, we see scattered throughout it, throughout this uh, book, things like my little children in verse 1 of chapter 2, verse 18, children. Again, in verse 28, it says, and now little children. And so what we see here is a picture of a father uh, speaking to his children, the ones that he loves and he's close with. Through this, we get warnings in this 
book of false teachers that were rising up amongst them. So we can see that it was a group of believers that he was writing to, possibly a certain church or maybe even a group of churches. And as he was writing this, it was ones that he had labored with and cared about and knew well. So as we look and we see these warnings, uh, they can be contrasted pretty harshly sometimes. And one of the big false teachings that was going around at that time was Gnosticism, the idea that basically uh, the things of this world, uh, the physical, natural world was evil and the spiritual was good. Uh, The idea, the major heresy that they were trying to spread was that Jesus had come in spirit but not in body. And if we're not careful uh, with this passage, it may be easy to think that John is actually uh, almost supporting this view, but uh, upon further inspection, we'll see that he is not, that he's encouraging uh, believers to look out for these things. So let's read the Word of God. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Just bow in a quick word of prayer. Lord, We come before you now. We thank you for your word that you have blessed us with, Lord. We pray that you would give us ears to hear, Lord, that you would shape our hearts into your image, Lord, as we look at this passage. Lord, that we would be edified and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we'll jump right into verse 15. We'll look at the first half of verse 15. And uh, we're also going to spend a little time in the middle of 16 with this first point. In the, begin- in the first sentence, we see, do not love the world or the things in the world. John is giving us a command here to his readers uh, not to love the world and the things in the world. Maybe another passage that comes to your minds is John 3.16 from the Gospel of John, written by the same author that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him should not perish but have eternal life. Kind of a conundrum a little bit if we think about it. We have a picture here of God loving the world and sending his son and now commands from the John also not to love the world or the things of the world. What is the difference? Uh, there is a difference. This is an example of using the same word in different ways. I think of, you know, you think of these hot summer days that we're having right now and this nice building that we have currently without AC in most of it. Uh, But if I was to go into a friend's house and go into his basement and he showed me his basement and I came upstairs and I looked at my wife and I said, wow, you should see his basement. It's really cool. That could mean one of two things. It could mean either... That room down there is really cool compared to the heat outside. Or it could mean that home entertainment system down there is really cool and you have to see it because it would be really fun to use. 
Uh, and so similarly, we have an example here of a word being used in different ways. Is John getting at then the fact that the world and the things in the world are bad, that they're evil, that the physical, natural world around us is evil? Is that what John is trying to say? I'm going to say no. We can see him expanding a little bit on what he means here in the middle of verse 16. It says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. What is he getting at here? He's getting at the heart of man. Another word that is in this a lot showing up besides world is the word love. He's talking about the human action and the human heart, which many times when we sin against God is loving the world. Benjamin Budham, who was a theologian, uh, he wrote an exposition of the Baptist Catechism. Now, uh, the Baptist Catechism is a, a good tool that we have as Christians. The Catechism is uh, it's not a Catholic thing. It's used by Catholic churches a lot. And that may be where some of you know it from. But uh, catechism is basically just a form of teaching, right? From question to answer. So the first question of the Baptist Catechism, who is the first and chiefest being? God is the first and chiefest being. I know some of you know this already. We've uh, kind of gone over this in place of Sunday school during COVID. And that was really where I had heard it and found it to be a great practice, one we adopted in our family worship and uh, has been beneficial in teaching us just these biblically-based truths. Um, the world is going to try and catechize you and your children. Uh, and it's important that we are catechizing ourselves with biblical truths. So, Benjamin Budham, this theologian, wrote an exposition on the Baptist Catechism where he took, actually, this piece here in the middle of 16, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, and helped us see how this is referring to our sin, and not just our sin, but even original sin in the Garden of Eden. He says with a question, did they sin by eating the forbidden fruit? Yes, for she took of the fruit and did eat and gave also to her husband with her, and he did eat. And these answers are coming from Genesis 3.6. So all these answers are based on biblical texts. What was there in the sin? Was there in this sin the lust of the flesh? Yes. For she saw that the tree was good for food, and the lust of the eyes. Yes, for she saw that it was pleasant to the eyes. And the pride of life. Yes, for she saw that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise. So in the beginning, we have God who created everything. He created the Garden of Eden. He created man and woman in his image. He created this tree. He created all of the trees, and he told Adam and Eve to tend to the garden, to enjoy its fruits besides from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said it was good, and he gave them that one command, and they broke that command and brought sin into the world. So was it this tree or its fruits that was sinful? No, it was not the tree or its sins, it was fruit that was sinful. It was actually 
the heart of man and what man did with that that was sinful. You see, when we sin, many times it involves the things of this world. And when it does, we are taking those things and elevating them above God and using them outside of God's good design for those things. I think of this passage here in 1 Timothy 5.8. It says, But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. If we get here a picture that it is actually good to work hard. It is good to be providing for your family. It is good to be putting food on the table uh, and providing for their needs. Uh, but maybe an employer has an employee who is doing this faithfully to the glory of God. He may have another employer who is there, who is also showing up to work with a smile on his face, who is also working hard and diligently in his job, right? To that employer, the outward work might appear very similar or even the same. Uh, But the desire of that other employee could be very different. It could be for uh, the love of money. It could be for greed and a desire to have more things. It could be for the love of the things of this world. In what ways might you be loving the things of this world? Do you find yourself appealing to the desires of the flesh? Maybe speaking harshly to your children or disciplining them in anger? Do you find yourself gossiping around the water cooler at work or maybe even speaking ill of your spouse to get the other guys on the job to laugh at you? What ways might you be appealing to the desires of the eyes? Do you find yourself taking a second look at that person walking by when you're driving? What are you consuming on your TV? Do you find yourself looking at TV shows or movies with actors and actresses dressed provocatively and doing inappropriate things together? And what are your standards for provocative and inappropriate? Are they the things of this world and the standards of this world or the standards that we find in Scripture? Do you find your value in the pride of life? Do you find yourself looking to obtain a certain professional status? Maybe you think you'll be happier with the way people respect you for the title of your job. Maybe you'll find value in the comfort and comfort in the size of your bank account, thinking you're okay because you'll be able to just throw money at any problems that come up to get it to go away. Or maybe you're living for the last third of your life, egging away every bit of money for retirement. Is your joy in these things? Is that where your love is? John starts with this stark command here about not loving the things of this world. And he does it for a really important reason that we kind of see here in the second half of the verse. It says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So he gives us this command because there is mutual exclusivity here. He's saying, do not love the things of this world because if you are loving the things of this world, it means this other thing about you over here is not true. That being born again, the love of the Father being born again. Jesus 
in Matthew chapter 7, 15 through 20, says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So Jesus is actually talking about false prophets here, similar to how John is in this passage warning of false teachers. And while I think these things are definitely applicable to at least false teachers or false prophets, I think many times these warnings are things that we can even be considering of our own lives. When you are either in the pulpit teaching the Word of God or maybe at a Bible study opening up the Word of God uh, to a a group of people, uh, what you believe about it is a lot more obvious. So we see these fruits, I think, a lot more obvious in these teachers, but uh, just because somebody is not in a teaching position does not mean that they are... uh, unable to be put in these categories. We have a mutual exclusivity here. Um, You think of kind of this war going on in Ukraine right now, unfortunate war. You have two military powers. You have those of Russia and those of Ukraine. You have soldiers who love Russia and are fighting for Russia. You have soldiers who are in love with Ukraine and fighting for Ukraine, but you do not have both. You can be one or the other. And you can tell who that is by the uniform that they're wearing and the actions that they're taking. What uniform are you wearing and what actions are you taking and what does that say about you? What does it say about the profession you're making? Do they align? Sometimes the fruit is obvious in our lives. Sometimes it's pretty clear, and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it is hidden away. It's harder to see. Sometimes it doesn't come out until a lot later. Maybe a tree is diseased and does not show its disease until later on, and then it can be dealt with and cut down. And so sometimes we can hide what is going on in our heart, even from those that are close to us. In the Bible, in the Old Testament, we have somewhat of a warning about this. Samuel was going to the house of Jesse to anoint one of his sons to be king. And and some of you may already know that the son that gets chosen to be king is David, King David. But when Samuel is going to actually anoint David, he does not yet know that he's going to be anointing David as king. He knows it'll be one of the sons of Jesse, but he's not sure which one. And Jesse starts bringing his sons before Samuel. Samuel sees Eliab, David's older brother, and thinks, this guy looks like a king. This must be the one that I'm going to anoint. And the words God speaks to Samuel in that moment are this. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, Eliab. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
You can fool the people around you into believing something. You may even be able to partially fool yourself, but you cannot fool God. There will become a day of judgment that you will be accountable for your life and for what is going on in your heart. I just want to take a step back here. This is all pretty heavy, I think. John tends to come down pretty black and white on things and draw some pretty fine lines of uh, what it looks like to be a Christian versus a false teacher. And I think sometimes, for some people, it can be easy to get discouraged when reading this. It can be easy to think, am I even saved? I see places in my life where there is sin. I see things where I love the world. I love Jesus, but I do speak harshly to my spouse still. Uh, I see in my life places and wonder, am I even saved? I want to, one, just say it's good that you are taking your sin seriously. It is good that you're wrestling with these ideas and seeing the sin in your life and understanding the offense that it is to God. Uh, But two, I don't think we are supposed to live doubting our salvation. I want to provide some encouragement. John himself, even in this book, recognizes that when you are a Christian, you are not without sin. So, in chapter 1, verse 8, it says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Again, John himself even recognizes that you will have sin even once you are saved. Does this mean then that everything about the good fruit and the bad fruit goes right out the window? No. There is, even in our response to sin, good fruit or bad fruit by our response. If you are living and you are seeing these sins in your life and you are content in your sin, you are unrepentant in heart, it is showing bad fruit. A Christian's response to the sin manifested in your life is one of repentance, is waging war against these things that the Spirit brings to your knowledge that He shows you about your sin. It's waging war against these things. It's grieving these things and turning from them that you might worship the living God. You need to know that your status as a child of the living God is not dependent on your ability to keep the law. Your status as a child of the living God is not dependent on your ability to keep the law. It is dependent on faith in Jesus Christ. So we grieve our sin, we repent from it, we turn from it, and we seek to honor God not by looking at our ability to keep the law for salvation, but looking at the finished work of Christ on the cross. We trust in that work of Christ. We put all of our eggs in one basket. All of our hope when we stand before God on the day of judgment 
is in the work of Christ. You can know the gospel. You can believe the gospel and still not trust in the gospel. We must trust in the gospel. We must rely on the work of Christ for salvation alone. The second part of verse 16 says that the things of the world, they're not from the Father, but it is from the world. So we've been talking a little bit here about putting off sin, about waging war against sin, about fighting against sin. But it's not enough to just do those things. We were created as human beings in the image of God, and we were created to worship God. We need to wage war against sin, but that love and passion that we had for sin before knowing Christ needs to be redirected to a love and passion for something far greater, and that's God himself. And God is worthy of being worshipped for being God. He always has been. He eternal was, eternally was in the past. He is now and he eternally would, will be. He had no beginning. He has no end. It's really beyond our comprehension as human beings. He is all-knowing. He created this world out of nothing, the universe and everything around it. You know, you, maybe you can think of a, a skill set you have, right? Maybe it's building furniture. Maybe it's being able to cook a, an amazing meal. Maybe you're able to paint a beautiful picture. But in order to do all those things to create that finished product, you have to use these raw materials. You're really reshaping the raw materials into this beautiful end product. God did not have to do that with this world. He spoke it into existence. He's all-knowing in that he knows exactly what's going to happen. He knows from the big things of military powers fighting each other to the little things of how many pieces of hair fell off of your head in the pew this morning. He's sovereign over it all. Nothing happens without the knowledge of God. His beauty is beyond what we can even understand. If you think of some of maybe the most breathtaking views, right? The Grand Canyon, if any of you have ever gotten a chance to go there. Uh, I think of some of the mountains I got to see in Colorado a couple years back. Maybe something we take for granted, the Atlantic Ocean. When you're there and you see this beautiful sunrise in the morning and you see an expanse of ocean, which we're just seeing a little fraction of. We're seeing a little fraction of it and we're just seeing the surface of it. All of these things are but dim reflections of the beauty of God, the Creator. They're dim reflections of His beauty. His glory is really beyond what we can even withstand. Uh, Michael Mull talked about this a little bit last week, and I'm going to bring it up again. In Exodus, Moses wanted to see the glory of God. And so God hid him in between some rocks and said, all right, I'll let you see my glory, but I'm going to pass by you and you're only going to be able to see my back. 
And in Exodus, it tells us the reason for that was because no man is able to see the glory of God's face and live. His glory is beyond what we can even understand. These are a couple of the reasons that we worship God. God is worthy of our worship just by himself. There is still yet more that we would worship him for uh, that we're going to see in this last part, this last, last uh, verse here. We're going to see yet another reason that we worship him. And coming to this last verse, John gives us two things. The first half of the verse, he gives us a warning. And the second half, he gives us hope. The first half of the verse says, And the world is passing away along with its desires. Uh, I think of James chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. They says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there or trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Poof. Gone. You think of these hot days that we're having. These asphalt roads are burning up. You could probably actually cook an egg on them. You go out there and you drop one little drop of water. And that thing is going to simmer up quickly. It's a picture that we're getting here of our life. It is temporary. If we're fortunate, we'll be blessed with 100 healthy years here. And then we'll be launched into eternity into one of two places. Heaven or hell. Hell is not fun to talk about. I don't think any of us wants to talk about it. Jesus talks about it a lot. He talks about it more than anyone else in the Bible. And I think part of the reason why Jesus talks about it so much is because he actually understood what hell is. The eternal punishment for sin. We have pictures in the Bible about what that looks like. Fire, brimstone, the gnashing of teeth and darkness. Uh, But just like God's beauty being dimly reflected in the beauty that we experience here, the pictures we have of hell are dim reflections of what they really are. That ought to be a motivation for us to preach the gospel faithfully to the lost and dying world around us that some might believe and know forgiveness for sins. We do know that this world is temporary, though. And I think all of us know this in our hearts. Like hell, we like to try not to think about it. We like to try and avoid the idea of death. We like to try and hide it. We like to try and make it even something beautiful. A couple of years ago, I think it was right around when COVID hit, and we were all stuck home watching movies. Janine and I, we were watching a movie together. It was called uh, Me Before You, I think was the name of the movie. And it was trying to make a beautiful picture out of assisted suicide. It was trying to make a beautiful picture out of death. Death is a result of sin. It is ugly. 
We cannot pretend it doesn't exist. We can have the perfect diet. We can have the perfect exercise routine. We can be doing those things faithfully, and we will still experience the aging and deterioration and eventually death of our bodies. Our time here is temporary, and so are the joys of this world. We can even think of good joys. Think of maybe some of the most rewarding things in your life, and maybe they are good. Maybe it's something like marriage or having a child. Maybe it's a promotion at work that you've been really working hard towards. Maybe it is some kind of academic achievement that you've made or some kind of athletic record that you broke. How long until that mountaintop that you were on you start to come down off of? How long until you start looking for the next mountaintop to climb? The next joy to be had? The joys of this, thing, this world are temporary and fleeting. Fortunately, this is not where John leaves us. He does not leave us in despair. He does not leave us in this temporary condition of fleeting joy. The last part of verse 17 says, But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Excuse me. John contrasts the temporary fleeting things of this world with the everlasting joy to be had in Christ. Everlasting in what? Again, similar to how we have these dim pictures of the beauty of God, I think we also have dim pictures of what heaven is really like. We see streets of gold and mansions, and, and maybe those things will be there. I think those are things that are trying to describe the beauty but are unable to actually paint a clear picture for us. I think it will be far better than really what we can imagine. Being in the presence of God, seeing his beauty, seeing his glory, will draw us to worship him. There will be no other place we'd rather be. You think of the most joy you've ever had here, the biggest accomplishment and the feeling that felt. When you stand before God, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, that feeling will be far greater than anything you've experienced here. And it won't go down over time. As time continues on and you grow in your understanding of God in heaven, for eternity we will be learning about God and who he is and, and witnessing his beauty and it will just continue to grow our love for him. It won't be fleeting or diminishing. It will be increasing Who is it, though, that gets to experience this, right? This verse says, whoever does the will of God. Is John telling us that you earn your salvation by doing works, by doing the will of God, that you will get to experience heaven? There was one person in all of history who has earned salvation, and that is Jesus Christ. God is a perfect and holy God. We are sinners. We've fallen short of his standard of perfection. We cannot be in his presence. Our unholiness is an offense to his holiness. 
we have brought eternal damnation onto ourselves through our sin, and God could have left us there and been just. Still being a just God, though, he did not. In love, in mercy, in his grace, he sent his son, Jesus, who took on flesh, who lived a perfect life, who faced the temptations of this world, who resisted the temptations of this world, who took on physical torment on that cross, and far more than physical torment, far worse than we could ever imagine, the wrath of God for our sin, the punishment, the just punishment for our sin Jesus took on the cross. God proved this to be true three days later by raising Jesus from the dead, by ascending him into heaven where he waits until he comes back for his church and for his people. God did this through Christ, and Christ earned salvation not for himself. He had eternal life already. He did it so that sinners, so that you and me might believe in the name of Jesus, that we might turn from our sin, that we might be able to experience the full forgiveness from God for our sin. So what does it say when it says, the one who does the will of God abides forever? Uh, Think about it this way. You're walking down Main Street out here, right? And completely unprompted, somebody comes up to you, they pay off all of your debt, and they give you $100 million, a gift you could never pay back. What is a proper response to that? One of thankfulness. How would you show thankfulness to that person? You'd be seeking to honor them. You would look and find out what it is that their will is. You would seek to honor them for this gift that they have given you. Similarly, when we encounter the gospel, when we see our sin and we experience forgiveness for the sin and we see the righteousness that we've been clothed in, in Christ, We don't do things. We don't look to follow the word of God that we might earn salvation. We do it out of a thankful response for what he has done for us. We seek to love and worship God through obeying his word as a result of what he has done for us. So, in closing, I would just like to say To the unbeliever, do not live for the temporary fleeting satisfactions of this world. Believe in the name of Christ and trust in the work of Christ that you might have eternal life. Turn from the love of this world and do the will of God in thankfulness for what he has done on the cross. And to you, believer, if you find yourself longing for the temptations of this world, remember the forgiveness you have in Christ. Turn from, the forgive, turn from the sin and seek to honor God out of a thankful heart for what he has done for you. Let us pray. Lord, we just come before you now. We thank you for your word that you have given us. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified through this time we have together. I pray, Lord, that you would Edify us through your word, Lord. 
It's a two-edged sword. It cuts to our heart. It reveals things to us through the work of the Holy Spirit that we wouldn't see otherwise. Lord, I pray that you would, your will would be done in our lives, that we would grow in our love for you. Lord, I pray that those who do not yet know you, Lord, that they would come to saving faith, that they would see this free gift, Lord, that you have, that they would see how the temporary things of this world pale in comparison to the eternal life you offer. Lord, I ask that you would grow, uh, grow your church here. Lord, that there would be revival in this state. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.